0: Headliner Radio, the creative voice. This is Headliner Radio, and I'm your host, Will Hawkins. Today, our guest is Nashville singer songwriter Allison Moore.
1: frustration i need life a nice cold but you can't
0: get there from here that was can't get there from here from Allison Mora who's joining us now remotely from Nashville thanks so much for being here with us today Allison thank you thanks for having me well how's everything going in Nashville now after all the storms
2: well you know it uh, the the tornado that we had in i guess it was early march um did a tremendous amount of damage, especially on the east side of town. Um, We live on the west side, so we luckily didn't get any damage. Um, But it just sort of devastated um, a very vibrant part of East Nashville and beyond. Then um, with the coronavirus uh, sort of taking over everything, um, I don't even know um, what is happening with relief efforts for uh, those people who had so much loss from the tornado, and that's that's saying something. I guess uh what is happening is people are trying to still clean up and rebuild as safely as possible yeah, so, and I would
0: think too it's with those rescue efforts in any kind of disaster like that how do you how do you shelter them at that point right you know, I know. With all the space that you would need you know it, all of a sudden that complicates those efforts even more.
2: Well, this is something that I've been thinking about a lot. And I was actually talking to my my sister Shelby about this yesterday because uh, I told her uh, what I was doing. I called her. I was on my way from taking my son to his dad's house um, and uh, I was driving back to my house and I said, yeah, I took John Henry to Steve because I decided to let the housekeeping service come today. Um, which was a really big deal. I was like, I can't take it anymore. Look, I've had, um, you know, trying to uh, keep a house clean when people are in it 24 seven, Yeah. With, you know, a 10 year old boy, a 43 year old man <laughs> and two dogs. I said, it's a lot. I'm just, I said, you live by yourself. You don't have anybody to clean up after, but I do. I need them. I need them. And uh, I said, look, I, I did okay for a while, but I just, um, I've got to have, you know, some better cleaning. So, um, I said, you know, it's, and I said, and they need the money. It's yeah. really difficult to say, well, I'm not gonna keep my, um, my systems going because you know, when you're running a household, you've got all your stuff that you do and the people who do the things that they depend on being paid for. So it's just, it's all, everything is affected. And um, I said, you know, it's hard to know what to do in this situation. Um, and and my point is, when you say the word shelter, I immediately think about the people who are not in safe situations at home. And that is such a, a scary thing. And it's, um, you know, it's not just women. It's not just children. It's, you know, people get into abusive situations um, of all kinds, and telling people that they have to stay home and they have to stay in these situations, and there's nowhere for them to go, there are no shelters open. That it, it just all of this presents so many problems that no one knows how to deal with. Um, so my mind is really there uh, recently. Yesterday, today, I'm thinking about, okay, yes, yeah, uh, safe at home is great. What if you're not safe at home?
0: Sure, and for those who are stuck at home, they feel trapped in those abusive relationships to begin with, but at least they can get out and see friends or go to work, but Mm -hmm. 24 hours a day be involved in that. And then of course there's the unsheltered, the homeless that are on the street Mm -hmm. Uh, here in Los Angeles, they've created some solutions, but the encampments are no better now than they were when we started. And so on top of the anxiety of, of, the COVID now people are worried about the whole situation with the, with the weather that you guys are dealing with. And is this considered a a seasonal thing for Nashville or did this come out of the blue?
2: Well, uh, a couple of weeks ago, in fact, it was two weeks. It will be two weeks tomorrow. um, We were just having what felt like a typical Sunday was outside doing this, that, and the other. And all of a sudden we had a huge storm come up, which knocked out our power um, for about three days some areas of Nashville were out of power for even longer, but we at at our house went, went without power for, for three days. It knocked down a lot of trees. Um, so, you know, it's just kind of crazy It's thing on top of thing on top of thing. And, um, it's, it's funny because, um, before that happened, I was thinking, well, you know, this is weird, but I guess it's okay. I work from home anyway when I am home, but then, to, have your, to lose your power in the middle yeah. of a stay-at-home order. It was like, you've got to be kidding me. This is ridiculous. Um, and luckily, we had a place we could go. We had a friend who had uh, power at her office, and we wouldn't stay there. But, um, yeah, it's, it's crazy. Just crazy times.
0: I don't know. Are you the kind of writer that can use situations like this as inspiration, or do you need time for things to kind of gestate before they – end up on the paper can you be in a moment like this and write about it or do you need some time and space in order to come back to it
2: it depends on what it is i'm trying to write um i'm working on a second book right now and um you know it's 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 working itself into that book um uh you know i'm (laughs) i was i jokingly said this to uh another writer yesterday, I said, well, look at the bright side, look at how much material you're going to get for your next book out of this. And, um, I think, those of us who are writers always have that in the back of our minds, like, okay, sure. how do I use this? It can be the most horrific situation. And there'll be some little light up in the middle of my brain going, remember this, because you'll be able to use. This. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me feel yeah. cold hearted, but, and I'm not at all, but it's just, you know, I'm well, always reserving a little bit of, mm-hmm, I'm going to file this away. Cause I know this will be of use to me.
0: Well, it's it's part of the process, and everyone's got their own. I've, for me, sometimes I need that space. Like I'll have that experience, and like a sponge, I'll soak it up. But it doesn't come out until I squeeze it. Right. And then there are times where something will happen, and I'll just pick up the guitar, and the first chord that happens, it's like there it is.
1: Mm-hmm. And then
0: I got other freaking songs that I still have from five years ago, that are like it's almost like an old Chevy in my yard. The damn thing's up there without any wheels on it. And it's just staring at me, mocking me until it's done. And some of those songs never end up being done. It's... Right. But I'm glad you brought up your book. Um, I, I've read it. And then I went back and, and read it again, knowing that we were going to talk. And what a brave and courageous, intimate account for, about your life and your family. And um, could you tell the audience a little bit about the, the background of what brought you to write this memoir? called blood
2: uh well it is a memoir of my childhood mostly um it's set in three parts the first two parts are about my childhood about my parents about how it was growing up with them um i lost my parents when i was 14 in a murder suicide my father had a severe drinking problem and probably some other stuff going on that i'll never be able to figure out um But he, uh, when I was 14, shot and killed my mother and then himself. And my sister was 17. Um, So,
0: And you were in the house when this happened,
2: right? I was. I was in the house. So um, that's the way the book opens. Um, I go by Annie Dillard's rules, which are... uh, get all of your maladies and uh, sicknesses and deaths out of the way first thing. (laughs) And plus the story was already out there. So there was no way I could uh, ask a reader to wait for that to happen later on in the book. Um, And it's really, you know, that part of our story is what makes the story extraordinary. What I have discovered and what I suspected already was that many people grow up in these situations with, Uh, You know, an abusive parent, a violent parent, an addicted parent, and uh, the children and the um, other parent, if there is one, live in fear. Um, Our story ended the way it did, and um, it is shocking and violent and unfortunate and, you know, has left my sister and and, uh, me both with a lot of trauma. Um, But it's something that we work on. and, And writing that book, you know, went a long way to healing that trauma for me. Um, I feel a lot different about it now than I did certainly when I was younger, then even through the process of writing the book and finishing it. Um, I finished it almost three years ago. And in that space of time, um, through the process of coming to terms with having done the work, coming to terms with, uh, having people read it and then putting out and putting it out into the world, um, what I discovered was, and this was a, a great relief, was um, that it helped people to read it and they could find their own common ground in it. And that exchange was very helpful to me because it, it made me feel like I had done something good because it, it gave other people a way to feel less alone, um, I've had people say to me I've never heard how I feel described so accurately.
0: I would have um, to say the same that was my experience in writing it. Um uh, I had a father who was physically and emotionally abusive towards all of us but especially towards my mom.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: she was a woman with a big heart made a lot of allowances and excuses for my dad and my brother and I you know grew up watching that and that Was supposed to be normal, but it doesn't change the the instinct of watching something like that to know that in your heart it's wrong. Yeah. Um, And I went through a lot of therapy as an adult to get through that myself. And I I remember a therapist when I was in my twenties say, you know, you've got this trauma, you've got this injury, and there's a scab that is over it but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's healed properly. So what therapy can do is it's cathartic, but it rips off, it can rip off that scab and there's a lot of pain in order to deal with that in the moment and then provide it the space time to heal properly. So you still have that scar, mm-hmm. but it's no longer, it's, it's properly healed and you can move on. Yeah. Did you, was that your experience?
2: Well, you know, I'm not sure what the process of um, either coming to terms or becoming more healed or whatever it was, there's, you know, there, it's not a linear process. It's, as mm. you know, it's, it's two steps forward, one step back.
0: Absolutely,
2: uh, It always is. Or, or, you know, we all have our triggers. We get thrown into um, our past trauma depending on what's happening in our lives. Um, but I think, uh, you know, my, therap- my therapist said to me, um, when I was I was speaking to her, I, in fact, um, she said to me, I was doing the, uh, the book tour, and I was talking to her about it because she was very concerned about how it was for me, like, talking about this every night because it's such an emotional thing, and then I made a record to go with the book, and all these songs have to do with the subject matter of the book, and it's just this, you know, big bunch of heavy information big bunch of heavy art. Yeah. That. Um, and my thing is always, look, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. We can turn this in a positive way, but I can only do that if I tell the truth first. And, um, you know, I was just speaking to her about, about how it felt. And she said, you know, you talk about what's happening in your life like a person um, who has healed would. She said, because the only way that you can look for the good in a situation is if you have a certain amount of healing under your belt. And I think that that's, what's different for me now is yes, I still have anger about what happened. I still have plenty of sadness and I still, you know, miss my parents desperately, but I do try to look at what they gave me and look what my sister and I were able to make out of what they gave us and what happened to our family. And You know, I just want to be in a place where I can honor that, right? And and not, um, and not dwell on um, the negative aspects. But I do think, you know, I want to reiterate this: you must go in to the negativity in order to come out in a positive place. You have to explore it. You have to do the work. You got to pull that scab off and you got to let it burn every time it comes up. So
0: and you got to want to do it. You can't mm-hmm. be forced to do it because right. it's just not the same experience. Right. The uh, the idea of this memoir, was it something that you've always wanted to do or did it did it come up at some point more recently? How yeah. did how did you come to actually start putting words down on paper?
2: I, this sounds crazy, but, um, I never, I never had any, you know, I've always loved to write. I always, you know, I was a journalism major in college and, and, uh, always, I've always been a bookworm and, um, writing is what makes me feel more like myself than anything else does. Um, but I didn't have any designs on writing a memoir, especially of my childhood, Um, until I became a mother and I, um, I got a call to be a guest on Maya Angelou's radio show about six weeks after my son was born. So of course I went and did that. I probably wouldn't have done much of anything, but that I did. because I wanted to talk to her and she asked me during the interview, you know, we were talking about our upbringings. Hers was not wonderful either. If you know anything about, about hers. And, uh, she said, okay, well, now you have John Henry, my son. She mm-hmm. said, what are you going to tell John Henry when he's old enough to ask? And it blew me away because I I didn't have an answer. I said, I don't know what I'm going to tell him. Um, I hope that I come up with something by the time he's old enough to ask. And um, that, for whatever reason, set me on the path. I started thinking about well, maybe I just need to to write all this down. I don't know. But it took me, you know, a couple years to find the, uh, the proper narrative. I had to play with it a lot, and, and you know, because I had never written a book. I didn't know what I was doing, and I did not know how to do it successfully until I found it.
0: Right. And I've tried writing something more than a four minute song myself, and it's not the same process. It's much harder to come yeah. up with 280, 320 pages as opposed to compressing that all into a couple of verses in a chorus. Right. So it's a whole other skill level. Right. Um,
2: But I will say that, you know, I feel like I needed prose to tell this story properly. Um, I'm not John Prime. I can't do that well in three verses. You know, I can't, uh, I can't get that job done. (laughs) Um, I couldn't, I couldn't tell the whole thing the way I wanted to tell it and draw the subtleties that I wanted to draw um, any other way.
0: Yeah. And then to be able to do that in a song, so that it's relatable to your listeners
1: mm-hmm.
0: too. Um, it seemed to me in reading the book that you and your sister Shelby didn't talk a lot about this growing up. It seemed like, is that, is that true? Did you guys sit down and have discussions over this over the years or when the book came about, was this when you really started zeroing in? On what well,
2: happened? we've certainly, we have certainly talked about it over the years we've, but we've, more honestly felt about it. Um, we never talked about it when we were kids and our parents were still alive. There was, what, what were we going to say? Um, you know, I think the thing about children is when they're in a situation like that is they know that it isn't okay. Yeah, We knew that there was nothing acceptable about it, but there we were, what were we going to do? We were children. Um, we developed our various coping mechanisms and we went along and we did the best we could. And, um, you know, somehow we made it out of there. Did you? And, see- you know, as adults, we, we definitely talk about it um, when it comes up and it always comes up.
0: Yeah. Did you spend a lot of time with Shelby went after, like right after you were 14 when it happened and then, she was 17 or 18 at the time. So more of an adult. Mm-hmm. Did you see your sister a lot in those late teen years Were you, did you have a close relationship with her then?
2: We've always been incredibly close, but she was at that time, she had graduated high school. So she was able to just sort of flit about for a while. And then she ended up moving to Nashville shortly after and getting her career started. Um, and I had, you know, three more years of school to get through. But we've always
0: um, we've always been very close. I was really enamored in the part of this book where you talk about the music background of your family, um, mm-hmm. not just your dad, but your mom being very talented, and, com- and your mother coming from a family where music was seemed to be the bedrock or the foundation of that family.
2: It was. It certainly was. Um, my mama was. Um, one of three children, but her mama, who I call Nanny, and she's my one living grandparent, she's 93, um, was one of 14 children, and she was born in 1926. So when she was coming up, you know, these are the Great Depression years, um, she and her brothers and sisters literally picked cotton, and they literally used music as their form of entertainment. It's what they had to do. They didn't have TV. They didn't have right. you know, any of those things. They sang for fun. Yeah. That's what they did. And they sang to get through things. They sang all the time. So, um, you know, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents when I was a very little girl and it wasn't unusual for, you know, one of her brothers and sisters, they all sort of lived in the same place. They, you know, were always dropping in, dropping by. And my grandmother's house was sort of the hub for things. Um, she would have these, um, what she called fiddlins, on a Friday or Saturday night, and everybody would come and play music. But uh, at the same time, it wasn't unusual for, you know, one of her brothers and sisters or a niece or a nephew or whatever to drop by in the afternoon. For, you know, a cup of coffee, piece of pie, whatever. And mm. they'd inevitably end up picking up the guitar or gathering around the piano and singing a few. It's just right. what they did. And everybody could play a little, could sing a little, pick out parts, you know, pick out harmony parts. So not all of them were, were super talented, but they all had something. Yeah. So it was just something that they did. It was a way of life. It wasn't wasn't weird at all. So I grew up thinking, that there was nothing special about it. And now I realize there was something very special about it. And, and when- it, it gave me so much richness in my life. And uh, I am just so grateful to have come up that way.
0: When you were a child, were you? did you have the personality of jumping right in and singing? Were you? What was it like for you to be young um, around all these musicians? Did you jump right in or did you have to be coaxed? Out of something in order to to get involved.
2: Well, the story goes that I um, started singing harmony at age three.
0: Oh, damn you, woman! So uh, that's, that's amazing. I don't,
2: I don't. I think still can't I, do
0: harmony now at fifty-two, <laughs> and you've got it at three. That's great. I don't,
2: I don't think I had to be coaxed. I it just in me, you know. And but that re- doesn't mean I was always eager to do it, you know? but uh, I could do it.
0: There's something to be said about siblings and family members when they harmonize. It's Oh, absolutely. So were you and Shelby singing together when you were kids too?
1: Mm -hmm. I think
0: we
2: did our first Fiddler's Convention appearance when she was eight and I was four.
0: And when did you start playing guitar?
2: I didn't start playing guitar until after I got out of college. I was 21. But I played piano as a kid. Um, I gravitated toward the piano and – My mama always scraped up the money somehow to get me piano lessons for my elementary school years. So I had a pretty good foundation. I could read music. And then, um, uh, I started picking out things by ear and, uh, just, you know, went with
0: that. And were you writing songs when you were younger too? Or was that something that came later?
2: I wrote a couple little songs, um, but I didn't get serious about it until my early twenties.
0: What do you remember about your father being a musician?
2: I remember that he had a lot of desire to make music. He definitely had uh, a lot of natural talent, but not as much as he needed to be great. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that was frustrating for him because I think that he appreciated what was great. He just did not have that, um, that X factor that made him really unique. And, um, you know, he, uh, he would, he broke time horrendously he you know they're just there were just some things about the way he went to, went about making music that you know look in this day and age he probably could have been fixed and been brilliant but um back a in the room day full he, of
0: songwriters <laughs> and some auto-tune you yeah. know moved to nashville
2: exactly and just shift that time in just a little bit um but uh you know it, it's it, everything is uh as it is supposed to be, I think.
0: I agree. And I, a friend of mine about five or six years ago whispered in my ear, the things in life that are meant for you will find you. And it was a key for me mm-hmm. where I was one of always just through sheer will to try to get things that I wanted. Mm-hmm. And then if I failed getting them, I would they would overwhelm me sometimes. And right. he's like, look, man, when you lose something, it falls through your fingers. It just means that it was meant for somebody else. And you just got to look at the table and find the gift that has your name on it. There's always Mm -hmm. something there.
2: Good advice.
0: And and it really, it changed my perspective in my life because whenever I lost something I thought was mine, I just had to remind myself that, you know, can't grieve something that was never yours in the first place. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And it's, I wish I had learned it earlier, but again, you learn these things when you're supposed to, right? Um, Would you mind doing a song for us right now? Sure. Since we're um we're talking about my sister,
2: um, it's a funny story. So I bought some yellow roses one day. And um, I was putting them in a, in a vase, and one of the thorns poked my finger. And I thought, well, God, that's painful, but it'll probably be okay. Well, the next day it had swollen to, you know, pretty uh, impressionable. Uh, uh, Um, impressive size so I ran to the urgent care and they uh, prescribed me an antibiotic that was far too strong so I took it for a couple days and then I developed this rash all over my body and then I discovered that I not only was the antibiotic too strong but I'm allergic to sulfur Oh. And this was a sulfur based. So I am like, and it gets worse and worse and worse. And I'm itching. Like I'm ready to just, wa- I was in New York at the time. I was ready to walk to Brooklyn and jump, jump off the bridge. Uh, <laughs> it was the only thing that would have relieved me. It was that bad. I had to, I couldn't even wait. Like I couldn't even go to my reg- regular doctor. I called for a house call for a doctor to come to my apartment and do something. It was that bad. So, not Benadryl, not anything would work. And so he came and he was like, Well, you're allergic to this and, and this medication, show it to me, blah, blah. He ended up giving me a cortisone shot that was very painful. And then this course of steroids. Well, you know, steroids kind of jack you up. And for whatever reason, I got the song out of
1: that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So what you're saying is the song is juiced up on steroids. This is a Mark McGuire type country song.
2: I'm going to play it for you and then (laughs) you can try to make sense out of it. All right, great. This is called Night
0: Start that over.
2: Um, Really, I was was starting to write songs for the next record that my sister and I were talking about making together. So that got shelved. So I ended up using the song on Blood.
1: the show. but until she hears us call and tiptoes down the hall. first light, last light, daylight, moonlight, in the morning we'll go fishing, but for now let's stay up listening. This listening, wishing, lying here together in the dark. You might not think I feel your heart. I promise you I do.
0: beautiful thank you thank you what I really love about that song is the as melodic as the the lyrics are that guitar part is just as memorable as the rest of it
2: well I think that we can thank the steroids
0: <laughs> now knowing that are is there a little secret stash of steroids in the back of your cabinet now for <laughs> Those times where you're like, you know, I'm having a little bit of a writer's block right now,
2: and, no, you, go tend, to, and you go juice. I tend to go in the other direction.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> with, uh, with the relationships that you've had over the years, you've dated and married other songwriters. What's it like to be involved in another songwriter when you're both writing about each other?
2: I guess it depends on at what stage the relationship um, is in. Um,
0: I guess when it gets so bad, the apathy just is like, whatever.
2: Yeah. I don't think I ever let it get there. Yeah. I think that's been my, um, my MO is I figure out and, you know, and I bust myself in my own book about my, my tendency to do that. And I think now I've gotten too old to, uh, To do that anymore, (laughs) it's like this doesn't feel good. This uh, I'm going to have to to uh, get out of this. Um, You know, it it I think it takes us a long time to learn how to stay in something and to figure out why we're doing it or not doing it. I know it certainly has for me, but um, you know, I I don't know that I've written that many songs about men when it gets right down to it.
0: When you and I first met. It was, I don't know, maybe 13, 14 years ago, and you were married to Steve Earle at the time. Mm-hmm. What, were you able to draw from him as a songwriter? Did you did you change the way that you write songs, or do you feel that you improved the way you wrote songs, having lived with another songwriter?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Did he have a, any influence at all in oh, the way God, that you yeah. wrote?
1: Yeah.
2: I mean, I don't think he can live with somebody without picking up at least a little bit of who they are and blending it into who you are. Right. Um, we were together for seven years and, you know, he's still a person that I talk to every day. We have a child. Right. So, or most days, um, and we have a child with special needs. So that, that makes our, our bondedness even greater. Um, Steve is, um, a tremendous writer and a tremendous artist. And I, I became a, a, a better artist through being with him. Absolutely. Um, and that's, I'm just really grateful for that. He did teach me some things about songwriting. You know, look, I had made four records before uh, right. we got together. It wasn't like I didn't know anything. I certainly did. And knew my way around a song, but it's you know being around someone who is that talented in that specific a way, you know what I always say about Steve and his songs um, is that he is special because the way he writes a song makes you feel like the first time you hear it that it already existed, and he just dug mm. it up somewhere mm. there aren't there aren't any parts that uh, in his for the most part in his songs that feel like he had to make them up. They don't sound made up. They sound like they already were there. And that is a, just a tremendous gift. Yeah. Um, He has a great ear for language. Um, His rhythmic ability is fantastic. And um, he's, he is also a very good student. You know, he studied, he, he knew what he wanted to learn and that's what he learned. So, um, I'm very grateful to him for that, for just, you know, I don't know. I think he, he probably just showed me a couple things over the years. And he Uh, also showed me how to make, a um, a Robert Johnson D. (laughs) Well,
0: that's worth it. Really
2: useful. And my finger picking got a lot better. Um, he's a great, great, uh, finger picker. got a a thumb like a jackhammer. So, um, you know, he, and, uh, and I will say this too, you know, he was writing his second book during the early part of our relationship. And, uh, I had never seen that done before. And I can't say that I would have figured out how to do it on my own. Had I not had an, uh, an up close seat for that experience. So, um, I think in, in all in all, he made me much more fearless.
0: Well, that's, as an artist, I mean, Mm -hmm. to be able to show vulnerability, Mm -hmm. to be fearless in the face of that vulnerability is what our listeners find in our Mm -hmm. songs. And I've had friends of mine that I'd ask, look, let me, let me play you something. And they're like, I'm not a musician. What do I know? I was like, you're my audience. You know, Mm -hmm. you're who's going to be listening to the radio. You don't you know what you like, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, when you don't like something. And I think listeners don't give themselves enough credit is they listen to the radio every day. They go to movies. They, they know instinctively what a song is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes as musicians, we get too far in our head. We're maybe too close to it. And I've always found it really good to ask friends who aren't musicians because I don't want to get too far off the path.
2: Yeah. And you can tell.
0: Yeah from (laughs) you can
2: tell from their reaction and I, i agree with that because sometimes you know and especially in this town everybody's a musician or something yeah um so you know having those people in your life who aren't who can give you honest feedback whether they know that's what they're doing or not because you can tell by their body language by their faces by their reaction you know if you're if you're doing the job or not
0: what from the from your first album to now are, as an evolution of an evolution as a songwriter, what do you do differently now that you did didn't do when you first started?
2: I don't labor over things like I used to.
0: Um, not so precious over.
2: No, um, not so precious, and I know a whole lot more about what I'm doing um, as a songwriter. So, yeah, I think the thing that you know, when whenever somebody will, uh, you know, inevitably ask me, you know, well, if you were going to give advice to a young writer, blah, 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 what would it be? And uh, first of all, I don't give advice other than to <laughs> keep your ass in the seat. <laughs> keep your ass in the seat. That's what you have yeah. to do. You have to yeah. work hard. There is no, oh, I'm going to, you know, wave my magic wand and you're going to, Uh, become a great songwriter, then no, you have to work. You have to work. Even Steve Earl has to work. And, um, um, you know, I don't, um, I don't spend that much time writing songs anymore, to be honest with you. I'm more concerned with tackling my other job as a, as a writer of prose and as a writer of, of other things, songs yet songs are always there sort of knocking at my door and I tuck them away. And when it's time, I will do the work with the song, but I'm not someone who's going to wrestle around for two weeks with a song anymore. Right. Um, and I attribute that to having the right tools in my toolbox. I think when we start out, we don't necessarily have our, we don't, we don't have a grasp of the craft. Right. All we have is inspiration and ideas. We don't know what we're doing. So everything's sort of like uh, slimy,
0: you know, slippery,
2: slippery and just going everywhere. And words are like that. And, you know, I find that the more I write other things and, and constantly learn about language and words and how they work, I can, you know, and songwriting and prose writing are two totally different things, as you've already said. Yeah. Two totally different processes. But they do hold hands in a couple ways for me. And those ways are in rhythm. Um, But I did bring that to the table from songwriting, the the way a line falls, the rhythm of your pair, the rhythm of your sentences, the rhythm of your paragraph, whatever it is. You know, when we're writing lines to a song, we want a certain phrasing. And you may have da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da, but then the third line needs to be da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Well, guess what? The same thing is true on the page.
0: Sure. And now having spoken to you after reading the book, I sense your rhythm. I can mm-hmm. hear your voice.
2: There's a there has it, to be that. I mean, that's why one of the main reasons why we love Hemingway because it was just so damn musical.
0: And and like a song, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. There's mm-hmm. a conflict, there's a resolution.
2: There has to be a problem.
0: Yeah. And it has to be done in a in a time frame that captivates the listener or the reader where they want to go on to the next paragraph, next mm-hmm. chapter. Yeah. And then when and the, they're all when they're all done with it, they want to feel that they've gone through this journey.
2: And gotten and they, something out of it. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. Yes, I yeah. know.
2: The other thing is um, the just the ear, the ear thing, um, word choices, you know, and the words that you use on the page and in a song are going to be completely different. And we don't worry about proper grammar in songs and we don't, I mean, I have. But I finally have decided that not everything sounds the way it needs to sound uh you know if if you use lay or lie, it all depends on how it hits your ear
0: yeah um and with the listener too, when it comes to a song, one word can paint a, can paint a picture, and I tend to be a little bit more abstract these days in my songwriting to be a, allow that listener to see the cinematic thing on their own mm-hmm. where in a book you have a paragraph to kind of flesh out what you want to say and the picture you want to paint with your words, where in in a song you really have to do that in such a condensed way to be able to keep that song at least four minutes. Yeah. You know, Um, tell me about the rock and the hill that Mm. that's, I've been following your career now for a long time and that's one of my most favorite songs of yours. And when we talked on the phone yesterday, it's, I can't pretend that I know you very well, just through your songs and a couple brief meetings. But as I said on the phone yesterday, that "Rock in the Hill" song, you're one little badass man. And, well, and I, and when I listen to the catalog of your songs, there's maybe one in eight or nine that come across like the "Rock in the Hill,"
1: mm-hmm.
0: where I'm like, that's someone I want to have a drink and play pool with.
2: Yeah. Right well, I think the thing about that is, you know, you can't bake that stuff, or it's no. Crazy clearly fake. And so I um I think that, you know, I I when I can get in that gear, um, you know, and I wrote that song sort of in character of my mother. Oh wow. Uh, so yeah, I I am trying to give her a voice in that in The Rock and the Hill. Because so many, you know, so many of my memories of her are driving down the road. Cause we lived out in the middle of nowhere. We lived in the country. So to, to get to civilization, it was a 30, 45 minute drive <laughs> yeah. that we made every day. And she would, you know, we were always late. She drove very fast. She was always <laughs> digging for lunch money, possibly, you know, there's a coffee cup on the dashboard. Um, my sister and I both in the front seat, like just, and you know, that's just how it was. And she's just always peddling as she knows, yeah. she had a, day late and a dollar short. And, you know, she wasn't supported. She wasn't taken care of. Um, you know, like our old car, like the headlights didn't work half the time. So we would be driving down these, um, really dangerous two lane, no, lights on the road and, and all of a sudden the headlights and the car would go out and she would have to jiggle them to get them to come back on and we would be going 80 miles an hour. And this is how we lived. And this is how she lived. And I know that she must've been so scared and so frustrated to be in that situation Right You girls right. and trying to, to take care of us and keep us safe. And, you know, and we would be flying down the road toward a house that was not safe. Right. And, um, you know, that's me feeling her frustration. And, and that's me tuning into my own frustration for her being in that situation because my mama was very tough. Um, why she could not use enough of that toughness with my father, I will never understand. Probably much like your mother, you know, we don't, we can't be in these situations. And then mm-hmm. until we are, we can't, we don't judge them. We don't, we accept them and we are sorry for them, but you know, we're left to wonder. Um, but that's, that's what that was. And, and, you know, that primal scream of why is just, uh, that is the only word that I could, that was the only word I could come up with that felt the way I wanted that to feel.
0: Right. If, if there was a way for you to go back having lived your life, experienced what you've experienced and be able to sit at the end of the bed and have a conversation with your 14 year old self. What would you tell that girl?
2: You're going to be okay. Be fine. You've been okay since day one. I mean, I sort of came, I arrived like this in a lot of ways. Um, I was always very grown up, self-possessed and knew a lot, you know, I went, through a lot of tough things when I was a kid, and I saw a lot of things that I didn't need to see. Yeah. Heard a lot of things that I didn't need to hear. But I also had a really strong sense of the fact that none of it was my fault and that there was something wrong with them, and it wasn't me. Now, how I got blessed with that little crystal of truth I don't know because most kids aren't.
0: I would say there's a lot of resolve in that you too. Know? Yeah. You know, it's um. Well, I want to thank you so much for spending some time with us today. I feel like we could talk for another hour. <laughs> you know, it's we'll been do a volume re- two. Yeah, it's it's been a real pleasure. And Likewise. I'm a I'm a big fan of your music, and I I really loved the book. And like others have told you, there there were parts of that book I felt I could have written myself too about what I was going through with my family. And you were able to really draw people in, share that experience in a way that they felt it too. And mm-hmm. I think you've got as much as an amazing career as a songwriter, you've got an amazing career as a writer moving forward too. And I, I wish the best for you in that. Um, how, can, how can our listeners find you?
2: Uh, my website, um, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all those things. I am not hard to find. I'm not. <laughs> and, um, and, and I have to say, you know, um, I've, I've definitely struggled with my relationship with social media, but um, I think during this time that everyone's been homebound, it's been a real blessing. I agree for everyone. It's been a a great way to keep connected and, you know, it's weird and everybody knows it's weird and everybody knows that there's a certain amount of life that we do not show, but, um, being able to connect with people and, um, and to say, Hey, you know, I really want to play music and I can't go anywhere and do that. Um, I'm going to turn on, I'm going to hit the live button on Sunday at 11 o'clock and, and, uh, I hope you join me. Just because I need to be making music, I know that people out there um, need music. And uh, it's just, I'm very thankful for that. It's, it's, I haven't even figured out what the, I've been thinking about what are the poetics of this situation. And in a lot of uh, ways, there just aren't any. Yeah. But there, there have to be some. And I don't know that we'll we'll, uh, know, what, we'll know what those poetic things are for a while
0: and i think people in the meantime are searching for something that's real and organic and one of the things i love that you do on social media is the lists that you <laughs> handwrite and it's real you know and it's interesting now to talk to you in the same room that i see the same book in, mm. in when you Yeah you're, this is you know, my spot. Yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's uh it's comforting and it's it's not a time where people want to he- want to hear overproduced songs. It's something about seeing you sit in that chair, right? Singing a song to your fans. Yeah. You know, it's, um, and I think what you do is really organic and beautiful. And um, I've had such a wonderful time today. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thank you. Um, Will. We're going to head out and listen to The Rock and the Hill. And um, this has been Will Hawkins. This is Headliner Radio. And we'll see you next time.
1: Up swing, ding, ding, throw me in the box and ring Bird can't fly with a and wing Everything you say is a coulda, shoulda, woulda, can't make lemonade Without no sugar I'm tired, pushing this rock up the hill I'm tired, pushing this rock up the hill I'm tired, pushing this rock up the hill Tired of this rock, tired of that hill Standing with my babies in the chicken pan Watching over like a nervous mother here. I got
0: but I don't know. Headliner Radio, supporting the creative community.